0: You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation, brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on wgnradio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is back open
1: for live shows, classes, and customized corporate workshops and events, but we also have all those things available in virtual formats. For more information, go to SecondCity.com. Second City is excited to work with Amazon as part of their new and exciting app called Amp. Amp is a home where anyone can create live radio-style shows alongside some of the biggest names in the entertainment industry, including ours. Join the Second City live every Thursday at 5 p.m. Central Time for our show, Second City Public Radio. SCPR is an interactive weekly lampoon of all things public radio. Each week, our host and an ever-expanding panel of Second City characters open up the lines to listeners from around the U.S. to ask questions and offer us opinions on a slew of wide-reaching subjects. Download the app, and don't forget to tune in. AMP Thursdays at 5 p.m. Central Time. My guest on today's pod is Christy Hunter-Arscott. She's an award-winning advisor and speaker, and she's got a new book. It's called Begin Boldly, How Women Can Reimagine Risk, Embrace Uncertainty, and Launch a Brilliant Career. Enjoy the pod. Mm -hmm. at home and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at the Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is Getting to Yes and.
0: Days can't be counted by the money you spent. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. The tick of the clock and the tick of the clock mark the moments till the ticking stops.
1: christy Hunter R. Scott, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks so much for having me, Kelly.
1: There are so many adages in the world of improv that seek to inspire young performers to take playful risks. Uh, we talk about seeing all obstacles as gifts. Uh, we talk about replacing blame with curiosity. And we talk about following the fear rather than being consumed by it. And this seems to parallel a lot of your thinking in your new book.
2: Yeah, it does. I was actually just frantically trying to write it down. I'm glad I get to listen to this again, all of those phrases, because there's such synergies between my focus and also the improv world and what you're doing. and. What I love, this first one that you brought up, the idea of playful risks. I mean, what a powerful concept, because my whole idea in the book is how we almost break down misconceptions about risks having to be this end-all, be-all, one big move, and we're facing failure, and that I really want to create a ritual around risk-taking in our lives, and the idea of making them playful is so compelling, because it makes them much more enticing.
1: Well, this is this is just something this comes up, comes up a bunch on the pod. So I just interviewed um, Annie Duke, who's got a new book on quitting, mm-hmm. and saying we 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 have all these great metaphors or, or, or connotations of grit, but we don't have quitting. And any, especially any innovator has to quit all the time because you're you're making these you know turns. And we use words like pivot because we don't want to use the word quit. <laughs> um, you know, and and so I think that you know what you're very much trying to do. I think in your book for women especially, because they've got the the bind or the double bind, depending on which case, is they're consumed by a lot of these bad metaphors and and cultural expectations and straight mm-hmm. up misogyny too. That hasn't gone away. Um, so I think you know it's funny you say too in the book quote brilliant careers are seldom built without bold moves. I don't know a brilliant career where someone didn't take a great chance and and fail. On their way to success.
2: Yeah, I completely agree with you. And one thing I say in the book is that even risks gone wrong have the chance to propel us further than a consistent choice to play it safe. So, an example would be like, imagine this is my career. I could be little, little, little steps my whole life, or I could take a risk. And even if it backfires, and I go back here, what I learn will get me further than that consistent yep. choice to play it safe. And I think that's what people forget sometimes. We don't understand that that learning, those insights, moving that blame to curiosity, which is something you just said, which is mm-hmm. such a synergy again in the work, is so critical. And I would also say to you, Kelly, it's not just that I know don't know any bold careers that weren't made without risk-taking. It's that most people take more than one risk. The most brilliant careers are created through a portfolio of risk-taking as I talk about it.
1: Yeah. Um, also in the Annie Paul book, she talks to Astro Teller at Google X and you know they're doing these like loon shots, right? They're, and so they, they have to quit all the time if, they, if they're yeah. not getting anywhere. And yeah. Astro Teller, ha- I'm obsessed by this metaphor. I've talked about it with a bunch of people, but he teaches his people uh, the... Um, uh, uh, monkey on the pedestal, it's called. And basically, if your assignment is to teach a monkey to recite Shakespeare on a pedestal, don't start by building the pedestal because it'll give you the illusion of progress. Oh my gosh. Isn't that great? <laughs> and, and you know, like you think about that, you're like, oh, I have built so many pedestals in my yeah. life. <laughs> I have just and, and, but that's, that's you talk in the context of your book, you talk about risk of like, let's break this down because you don't want to take stupid risks. Okay. <laughs> you know, you want to, you want to take the right risk and and you can pras- practice it in very sort of small bets in, in, in your life, you know, take taste something, yeah. try something, read something.
2: Yep. Yeah, I do. I, first of all, I love that, um, that quote, because sometimes I think we will, put so much of our energy and time into something that creates an illusion of progress, when in reality, the hard work has to be done somewhere else. And I think how we spend our energy, time and focus is one of the most important things. Um, But separate and apart from that, yeah, so what I mentioned is sometimes if we think about things as big risks, it makes them harder to do. And so I talk about these ideas of taking small courageous acts, which I call micro acts of courage. And that's because even incremental acts of courage, you know, taken in time, have compounding benefits and interests, right? So every single day, if we're doing something small that scares us, we almost build our courageous risk-taking muscle. So then we can take on bigger and bolder moves later on. So some of the executives I interviewed, you know, Talked about not being able to drive and going back and taking their driving lessons a million times over and their sons making fun of them. But they say, you know, for me, that's something that pushes me outside of my comfort zone and shows you that you don't give up. You know, for others, it was things to do with their family or personal lives or fitness or extracurriculars or new pursuits. So it's really compelling that you can build that risk-taking muscle in small ways and not just in the work sphere.
1: Yeah. And, and again, like a lot of people who take a a beginning level improv class, they're, they're, they don't, they're not going to get, they're not looking to get on silent live. You know, they're not even looking to get on a second stage. They just sort of like, maybe this will show me something. And inevitably, we don't even have to make the connection for them. They're like, oh, I get this as a kind of active meditation as kind of a muscular mindfulness, you know, like, you know, all all that stuff. Um, you also write in the book, quote, women who take risks intelligently have another secret to their success. If possible, don't go it alone. Yeah, I think this is huge, right? We, we, we have to, we got to build together.
2: Yeah. Well, I think the whole idea of being self-made is such BS. So <laughs> um, um, I think, uh, you know, Even those of us that have existed in times without the support structures that we'd like to have, uh, or maybe in comparison to others, human beings are interconnected by their nature. And all of us have had someone contribute to our careers and our paths in some way, shape or form. And a lot of the successful women that I interviewed, you know, they said stuff like no woman's an island. You know, we're all, our interconnectivity is our success. So I really, really think that the sooner we cultivate meaningful connections, the better, because risk taking alone it is, not, uh, is not intelligent or strategic.
1: <laughs> no, no, no. And 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 again, our culture has done a terrible job mythologizing the, the soul creative, the great man theory, all that bull. It was never true. Thomas Edison had like a bunch of dudes who were making the stuff in there and then he put his name on it. I mean, it's like it's been we've been doing this for, forever. Um and I think it's as you Point out in the book over and over again. S- science backs up the idea here, which is women need this even more uh, than men for a variety of reasons.
2: Yeah, and so one thing I've mentioned to anyone on the line is that look, the frameworks and tools in this book are applicable irrespective of gender or career stage. And I did write it for a specific niche, but it's been amazing to see the traction it's gotten as a model within organizations for experimentation and risk taking for senior male executives, but it is true that there's nuances in terms of what women and underrepresented employees need. And because of the things that exist in the world, the double bind, because of affinity bias, because of who exists in the majority, because of so many other factors, for women, that support network when taking risks is even more important. Because the harsh reality is, and it's unfortunate, and I don't want this to deter risk-taking, but this is not a book going saying, go be bold and there's no consequences and the world's going to treat you exactly the same as your male peer. No, it's saying you may face more backlash. Mm-hmm. You may face more backlash for risk gone wrong. And that is why you cultivating your support network is going to be even more important if you're going to really harness the power of risk dating. Uh,
1: One of the scientists that we work with at the University of Chicago is named Nick Epley. And a lot of Nick's research is around the many ways in which we get it wrong. Like Like he says, <laughs> in any interaction, we're probably 20 to 30 percent getting what, what the other person is is saying which which actually isn't that surprising if you think about all the noise that we're dealing with anyway. Yeah. Um, but the miscues and that sort of thing. But he his research shows the one thing you can do to up that is ask questions. Yeah. And this is something you might write about in the book.
2: Yeah. Um I'm actually I was just writing down that name and two and that percentage because I am not surprised. And you're right, we live in a world of constant distraction, us doing too many things at once. And actually, I feel like it's such a privilege to have protected time on podcasts and platforms like this, because it's rare, you know, you put on your do not disturb, you're not looking at anything else, and you get this protected kind of silo of a conversation, which doesn't happen a lot anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one thing I talk about yeah, in my book, and I really think this is one of the best traits in life you could have, and best things you could cultivate for a meaningful existence is curiosity. And what I share is that so much of our energy in the professional world is often put into what am I going to say? What am I? What's my elevator pitch? How am I going to sell myself? How am I going to promote? How, and what's even more important is what you're going to ask. And so when we go in, I always say flip the script from what am I going to say to what am I going to ask, and think about the questions that can build connectivity. I mean, we can learn so much from one another, but we sometimes stop at, you know, this very shallow intro when really there's so many things you could ask about someone's life, their risk-taking, their career, their lessons learned. And that's so critical for learning continuous improvement and meaningful connections.
1: Yeah. Nick Nick has other research that uh, talks about the fact that we don't share specifics of, of ourselves with others when in fact that you, you can, you know, Speed up a relationship and and have it go much deeper if you do that because people are genuinely curious and, and interested uh, in other people. But you know this is that the the mind is so tricky because you know we're we're constantly shifting between our system one and our system two because again because because of that noise. Another thing you write in that particular chapter we're we're talking about you say quote contrary to popular belief language matters how okay. we label an activity matters. Yeah. I, I I love this because it's 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 over and over again. I I see like, oh, we're saying it wrong, and in yeah. the saying it wrong, we're not allowing ourselves to do the thing we should be doing.
2: Yeah, it's it's such an interesting thing. It sounds so simple, but I've seen that like a simple switch or swap of language can make astronomical impacts on people's appetite for action and risk. So I always say language will either inhibit action or elicit action. And so I'm going to give you just a quick, you know, five rapid fire of some examples, which is when I tell women or people early in their career, you know, I'd really like you to go out and self-promote. How many people do you think are excited about self-promotion and tooting their own horn? Maybe okay. like 2% of the human race. But when I say I want you to go out and courageously advocate for yourself and others, and let's think about courageous advocacy, not you need to self-promote, but what does that look like? And people get much more excited around that concept. Um, same with negotiation. I mean, so many studies, negotiation, just the term makes us feel... Um, anxiety, makes us feel nervousness. There's so many things, women shy away from that. But when I say, I'd like you to go make a courageous ask, instead of negotiating for your pay, courageously ask for a package that more accurately represents your value. And they think, gosh, I can do this. Um, there's so many others, uh, I'm just trying to think there's like a few others, but, oh, even in the book, the core concept of like risk-taking, when we hear about taking a risk, we often think about it as a risk-taker is not me, it's financial or male terms or entrepreneurship, or we think of risk as something that we need to mitigate, manage, minimize. And so I always say, like, instead of saying, I have this risk in front of me, say I have the opportunity to make this bold move. And that to me, I mean, when... Are you going to take the risk of doing this? I'd be like, of writing a book, but having the opportunity to make a bold move to write a book. It's crazy how these little switches can just impact our appetite for action.
1: I know when I wrote my book, I felt like it, it, it completed a step that I, that, that needed completion. Like, like I had ideas, I did keynotes, I gave talks, but I didn't, put it all together in a place. And once I did that, it actually freed me up to learn more.
2: Yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. Does that that resonate?
2: Yeah, it does. And I think it's also because if the core themes of what you're working on resonate, which nothing is completely new, like if you're building upon research, then you're going to find the synergies like we're already finding here today. So just as we've been talking, I've written down like three different names, four different studies, different phrases I like. Because that is my next body of like, oh, there's something else interesting in this space that I want to try and intertwine into my next coursework or my next speeches. So it, I think it's amazing. I do think it frees up your time and mental energy a lot. So I get really excited.
1: All right. So we've done a bunch of uh, podcasts around burnout um, yeah. and uh, right. and this this idea of work-life balance, which is a bit, talk about bad metaphors, bad bad words, those, those don't work. Uh, I've heard work-life sway which I kind of like, uh, that's because you're always kind of like swaying, swaying in and out. Um, but you, you have a different, uh, phrase that you use for this, right?
2: Yeah. I actually don't like work life. No matter. You could tell me blend integration sway. I'm not going to like it. You're um, like it. <laughs> <laughs> it. although I like the term sway, but just not so much between work and life. I get it. Um, look, I think, uh, it's this false dichotomy of like extremes, like work is part of life. And so the idea of them being two separate entities, particularly when we're leaving, living in this increasing kind of uh, less barriers, more gray space world, I don't think is the most productive. And so I also think balance is an elusive ideal at best. And I think if we're trying to find that concept of balance, we're setting ourselves up for failure. Um, you're never going to have two perfect sides of anything. Um, mm-hmm. So what I talk about is instead of imagining a scale with two sides, we'd be better off imagining a wallet with a limited number of dollars. And you, Kelly, and myself, we have the same amount of dollars in that wallet. So we have $24 for our 24 hours in the day. And so what we want to do is invest those dollars in the areas that are going to create the greatest return on investment. And so the idea there is if we're investing our time dollars in things that don't matter, then we're going to get minimal returns, negative returns. But if we actually start asking using curiosity and isolating what really matters in our lives rather than assuming, then we can... We can actually reduce feelings of conflict, burnout, and tension by making really smart investments. So it would be as simple as saying to you before a podcast, you know, Kelly, what level of um, preparation do you expect? And and what should I focus on versus me preparing for 10 hours, not knowing your audience, the questions, the focus, and you do that in your life. You should ask your managers what matters to them most, your partners, spouses, families, We we create so much unneeded tension by assuming we should be doing certain things, but it's not aligned to the priorities of the people that matter to us.
1: So that relates uh, quite neatly to our podcast taping with uh, Cassie Holmes, who studies happiness. And essentially, the book's called Happier Hour, uh, and your happiness is where you're putting your attention. Yeah, and it's, 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 it's very simple. Um, and, and, and she has some lovely, lovely phrases. You do too. Actually, I, I, I love um, uh, a sort of reduced language to get to a, a bigger idea. And you have it when you write, quote, curiosity leads to clarity, clarity leads to reduced conflict, reduced conflict creates more room for risk. That's yeah. nice. Yeah. It's so simple, but, <laughs> but, but, it's, and it's, it's a line and, 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 and again, no, nothing's linear, right? Those things can move in and out, but you really are you, the things you, the things you're working with, curiosity, clarity, reducing conflict, which you could also say is friction, you know? Yeah. Uh, uh, and, and that does, that frees you up for risk. Cause you can't risk when you're depleted. Uh, you can't risk when you are like, judgy you're right all all those things that we talked about
2: you definitely can and you know today i was i'm i'm speaking at this uh large women's conference in iowa next week and i was putting together my presentation today and I, i i started it because i was like what does burnout and overwhelm feel like for me and it feels like when i've been in periods like that in my life like barely keeping your head above water and gasping for air and wave after wave after wave hits you. And that is how I feel when I I have been in these moments of intense conflict, friction, tension, burnout. But then when you're barely keeping your head above water, you can't then ask that person to learn how to surf. You know, they're just exhausted, just trying to. So the reason why this is in a book about risk-taking is one of the reasons people don't take risks is they don't have enough time. They feel stretched already. They, you know, but these are excuses that hold us back. So we've got to address those. So we leave room for those bold moves.
1: Um, How does storytelling fit into all of this? We we know that human beings are storytelling machines, right? That that's, that's how we, we best learn. And, and, and I, the, question is pointed in two ways, because I think you talk about internal and external storytelling.
2: Yeah. So um, one, I think storytelling is, is obviously incredibly important. And I was running a session, I just got back from London uh, last night, and I was running a session for women at a financial services company. And I talked about it in that session, so it's really timely because I said, when we talk about courageous advocacy for you and how you do that, because you have to be your own best advocate, I talk about crafting and controlling your narrative. And this is not a 30-second elevator pitch, which I also think is a bit outdated. How often are we in an elevator with someone for 30 seconds where we can reel off something? But it's essentially a document of who you are, what you do, the value you deliver, where you want to go. And and it summarizes all of these different threads of you. And then you can pull out different pieces and conversations on your LinkedIn and your resume. So it's really a whole narrative, a fabric of you. And so one bit I said in that is it is so important to back up statements with stories and anecdotes. And so if I said to you, um, Kelly, I'm a people person, you're not going to remember that when we log off. But if I say there was this one time in my life where I showcased this by doing X and Y, and the result was this, and this is why I'm like, you know, suddenly you've got a story that you'll remember. And so with women, storytelling is even more important than men. And the reason why is studies have shown that women receive more doubt generating statements in their careers and more requests for evidence and proof. So an example would be someone goes into an interview. Karen and Bob, and Karen's more likely to get questions like, "I need to see more evidence or proof that she achieved that on her own." I need to understand this more. So I always ask women when they're creating these narratives, include the stories and anecdotes. Those are the things that will minimize those doubt-generating statements. So it's so important.
1: Uh, Francis Fry is a educator at yes, Harvard. You know, Francis. Yeah. <laughs> And 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 the the study she did because she was trying to figure out why there weren't as many female business professors, and then it, it's it's because or, or getting published, and it's because women weren't handing in the papers. Yeah. So there was all that imposter syndrome, all that other stuff. It's like, oh man, you didn't hit send. That's what we're talking about.
2: <laughs> I haven't seen that study, but you know it makes sense. I mean, we I forget like the Hewlett Packard study was years and years ago, and that was the first study that came out that said. You know, men will apply for a job when they've got 60% of the qualifications and women when they have a hundred. So, I mean, in parallel to the coaching work that I do with women, I work with companies to be like, how can you frame things differently to encourage more applicants or to encourage your women internally to go for these stretch roles and positions? Because you're absolutely right, there are internal barriers and narratives that we tell ourselves. And so I, I also talk about in the book about how to interrupt those limiting beliefs that hold us back because uh, we all have them in some shape or form.
1: So there's an exercise that we do uh, when, if we're brought in and maybe it's an inclusion workshop and they're they're dealing with some gender issues or whatever, uh, we have uh, men and women play a game called Justin Little. And so what happens is uh, you we ask the one person uh, to in one minute describe, what they do, where they've come from, who they are, their accomplishments, that sort of thing. And then we have the other person listen and then they respond and respond back to them what they just heard, but inserting the words just and little. So you have this little conference you're going to go to and it's, you're just going to be on stage for, and it's so demeaning when, and for when men have to do it or it's done to them, it, it's, it's like an eye opener because you're like, all right, pay attention to your language. It matters. And if you are, you know status is such an issue and and people who walk in with lower status could actually be seeing more than 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 you know and you and you can use that and you know but but again we we it's it's almost like it's in our bones and and we have to figure out a way to get it out,
2: yeah, I mean that's such an interesting exercise because it highlights the impact of one little filler or descriptor. Um, on really undermining someone's accomplishments. And it's not just women undermining their own. It's women not talking about other women's um, accomplishments in the same way and men doing the same. So language definitely matters.
1: Um, you write in the book, on, in the chapter on agile identity, you say, quote, limited views of self can heighten risk aversion and in turn stunt career growth. Mm-hmm. When you talk about limited views of self, what, what are you getting at?
2: Yeah. So if you close your eyes and you think about the first word to complete certain sentences, um, it would be it. So for anyone on the line, think about, I will always, I could never, Mm. I just am like, these are the kind of triggers, right? And so we often have these all encompassing kind of internal narratives or beliefs about ourselves that are not necessarily rooted in fact, they're rooted in select data points that we use to create a narrative. And and it holds us back. The issue with limiting beliefs is they become a self-fulfilling prophecy. So I'm going to give you an example. If I say to you, I'm horrible at networking, I'm never going to be a good networker. Yeah. Then I avoid networking events. Right. And then when I'm forced to go to one, because we all will at some point... Then my hands are sweating. I stumble over my words. And then I use that as proof to reinforce that limiting belief. And I I say, you see, I told you so. I'm always going to be bad at networking. And then the cycle continues. So we need to find ways to really interrupt that cycles. And and part of that is through taking risks as well um, and really cultivating the confidence and courage to um, go outside of our comfort zone and just test these narratives
1: and and that's got to include positive positive self talk right i mean this, this is this is we we talk we talk to ourselves I Alison wood okay. brooks is a professor who um yes i i've,
2: I've, I've yeah. uh, co-facilitated a program at harvard with her and um, it was years ago and oh, yeah lucky she's here. just she's... magnetic amazing oh program. yeah no no, no. I mean, her uh, work on Curiosity is actually sourced in my book as well. So yeah,
1: she's she's the best. Uh, uh, I get to talk to her once a month because we got this little sort of writers group that we we get I'm to talk. I'm jealous. To. <laughs> I know it's 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 a badass group. It's like Dolly Chug and and Allison and Zoe Chance and like all, all these. Oh my gosh, amazing! Uh, but I was say, I said to her, even though I've been a public speaker basically my whole life, um, I, I get nervous for her talks, and she would just say, "Just say to yourself, you're excited." Yeah. And and I like
2: I do that now because she told me
1: the same thing, <laughs> but it works, right? I, I find it like it's it's just the thing I need five minutes before I go on stage.
2: Yeah, I do a combination of um, of her work and Amy Cuddy's power moves. Like when I'm behind yeah. stage, so I, I uh, leverage the work of uh, a few people at Harvard. But yes, our mental self talk is so important. So the research around saying don't tell yourself to stay calm; tell yourself that you're excited. Because the excitement, the link between anxiety and excitement is an easier jump to make. And you can leverage that energy. That makes sense to me. But the other thing is people think that when you've been speaking your whole life, I mean, I started public speaking and debating at the age of 11 on an international stage. And my whole life, you know, I was kind of at the forefront of these um, international competitions and then judging. And do I still get nervous? A hundred percent every single time. And it's not that I don't feel fear and anxiety, particularly when you care about a message in an audience and an impact, you will always feel that. So i always tell people it's not about being fearless. I think being fearless is one of the worst stories we've been told by society. Like those quotes, like what would you do if you didn't feel fear? You wouldn't be human. You wouldn't be living a rich and meaningful and amazing life. Fear is actually a sense that something's on the line that's meaningful. And, and it should be that sense of not, I don't want to feel it, but it's actually like a great catalyst. And I want to know how to move through that. And so for me, when I hear my inner critic, there's some interesting studies around this as well, that I used to try to silence it, ignore it. And the studies say you cannot ignore your inner critic. Like Whenever you think you're not good enough, or why me, or why should I be the messenger for this? Ignoring it doesn't work. Fighting doesn't work, but talking back to it does. So the studies show you really need to acknowledge it. And so mine for so long was like, I hear you, but I got this. And Mm -hmm. my passwords for my computer were, I got this. So when I got up in the morning and I was dreading writing or questioning myself, it was, I got this. And pick your phrase, you know?
1: Uh, There is a, um, I forget which which podcast this came up in, but um, they were talking, uh, um, uh, the author, had met someone whose wife left them, he's completely devastated, and he just, he wanted to get over it, and he changed his passwords to forgive her.
0: Oh, isn't that?
2: (laughs) Oh my gosh, that's like even way more powerful than I got this, but it is those reminders and those ways to talk to ourselves that that we have to use, like we, are our thoughts, and how we talk to ourselves can influence so much in our lives, so...
1: I'm curious, did you have you read The Extended Mind by Annie Murphy Paul?
2: Nope, but I'm writing it down.
1: Oh, it's so good. And what because we were talking about keynotes. Um, she has a whole it basically the book is about how we we have bad metaphors for thinking like the brain is computer. It's not. Mm-hmm. Um the brain operates differently if it's with a person or if it's inside or outside, whereas a computer doesn't. But yeah, she has a whole chapter on gesture and the fact that um uh a gesture uh is a very powerful tool when you're presenting. P- people will and, and um, uh, if you think about the way an actor often memorizes their lines, they do it when they're blocking the scene, because because they're in movement and movement and memory go together. So it's it's a really interesting way of like, okay, how, how's my body playing with my mind? My mind playing with my body. Um, yeah. uh, and, and and I had a thought too when you are talking about networking which was a, a professor uh, of social science uh, once said, all right, if you, if you go into these like cocktail hours for the networking, look for triads. Cause if it's a, you're going to be a third wheel, if it's just two, but if there's three people there, you have a place cause someone is not being uh, talked to or listened to.
2: Yeah. Great advice. Like, it's so funny that sometimes the things that make all the difference are like a simple trick like that, a simple reframing, a simple, yeah. get excited. And, and, and we can't um, underestimate the impact of those like simple tools just because they're simple. doesn't mean they're easy to implement. Like something can be simple, but not easy to actually take action on um, consistently. But I noticed like even in my own life and in the lives of people that I coach, like there'll be one framework that they just get an aha moment with. And then it it'll be, you know, completely different moving forward.
1: All right. So in a moment, I'm going to ask you for a yes, and story, but before that, um, you, in talking about courageous advocacy, you note that performative advocacy is not advocacy. Yeah. I feel like I see a lot of performative advocacy advocacy these days.
2: yeah, um, it's pretty disappointing. Um, I think one thing I would encourage organizational leaders to ask themselves, and I'll put it this way for because we can be courageous advocates on an individual level, but I I want to um, also kind of speak to any leaders on the line, which is, you know, most of the people that I work with um, in the strategic advisory side have great intentions. They want inclusion. They care about diversity, but their outcomes are lagging. So they'll say, oh, yeah, we want a diverse and inclusive workforce, but we've only had one woman in the partnership in the last 60 years. And Mm -hmm. and I I always say like, do your outcomes match your intentions? And that is the most powerful question leaders can ask themselves. Do your outcomes match your intentions? Because you would never say, you know, I want, I, I'm going to be financially savvy and save more money and not track your bank account. You'd right. never say that you want to have a healthy, long life and, and be fit and vibrant and not track certain health indicators. And so when we say we have these intentions for inclusive and dynamic and vibrant workplaces, but our outcomes are lagging or the outcomes are not existence, and there's a gap, the question because becomes how do we close that gap? And we need to acknowledge that and get there sooner.
1: Yeah, I mean, they're not checking for a reason. Yeah. I mean, that's just, and and, and, and look, I I have empathy for how hard this is, uh, because older white guy who was in charge at a certain time has to look back and be somewhat appalled by some of my decisions or my complicity uh, with regard to, you know, um, all all the issues. Uh, But it's so much better when you're like, okay, like, now I can do better now. That's, that's one reaction we could have, but yeah, it's, it's, it's hard. All right. Um, do you have a yes and story for us?
2: Yeah, just, I mean, for me, um, I guess just being kind of vulnerable and open about like times when I have overcome or not overcome, but moved through fear. And I'm sure every author is felt this way, but it, it was really writing my book. Um, and so for me, Saying yes to that was a process and a long journey. I knew years before I wrote that book that I had a book in me and it took me years to get to that yes. And part of it went, I will tell you is, and this happened to me also when I launched my own business is I had to have this internal dialogue with myself. And, um, and that was really, what kind of impact do I want to have? And if I want to continue to impact client by client, organization by organization, I can play it that way for the rest of my life. But my impact will be this circle. It will be people that can afford coaching, companies that pay for coaching for individuals, companies that will bring me in to do a session. But how many people outside of that limited circle would I miss who could benefit from these tools and techniques and ideas and put action in their own lives? And so I had to have this moment where even though I had so many fears, my why, and I talk about this in the book, my why was greater than my fears. And there was this quote I have in the book is she or he who has a strong enough why can endure anyhow. And, And the idea was I crystallized a motivation that matters. And that was, I'm not writing a book. I'm giving a toolkit to people so that everyone can afford these access to these for $20 versus the cost of coaching. And once I focused on impact, that's how I got to my yes.
1: Mm, I love it. Uh, the book is called Begin Boldly, How Women Can Reimagine Risk, Embrace Uncertainty, and Launch a Brilliant Career. Christy hunter R. Scott, thanks for coming on the show.
2: Thank you so much for having me and for sharing all of those amazing resources and research studies and books that I'm going to know now look up.
1: <laughs> Excellent. The Getting the Yes And Podcast is produced by The Second City and WGN Radio. We are supported at The Second City by Mike Farinaccio and Colleen Fahey. Our show is produced by Andrew Harris at WGN. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of the podcast is by Jukebox The Ghost. If you're interested in knowing more about The Second City, you can log on to SecondCity.com or email us at works at SecondCity.com.